0: So let's dig into today's sermon. Uh, We're looking at songs of Christmas. And so Christmas is a time for music. Uh, You hear it perhaps in the foyers, in your workplace. You probably hear it in your local IGA, uh, supermarkets, shopping centres. And you're either a person that loves Christmas songs because it seems to unite the world. Everyone's happier. Or you're someone that hates Christmas songs because they're super cheesy, corny, And it makes you want to throw up. But um, through the Songs of Christmas, we're going to look at four very first Christmas songs in all of history. And they're found in the Gospel of Luke. Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon have left for us four of the most beautiful worship-moving Christmas songs ever written about the birth of Jesus. Lyrics that are not cheesy and sentimental. Lyrics that are deep in truth. Lyrics that gives us hope. Lyrics that moves us and draws us into the worship of Jesus. Last Sunday we looked at Mary's song, and that's also known as the Magnificat. And today we're going to look at Zechariah's song, also known as the Benedictus, or Blessed. And they're named after the verse-verse of Zechariah's song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Or in other translation blessed be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And these Christmas songs, as I mentioned, in loose gospel, not only shows us that the Christmas story to be true and factual, but they draw us into the worship of Jesus, who is glorious and magnificent. But before we actually look at the lyrics of Zechariah's song, we're going to start to know more about what led Zechariah to sing, and what is it that led Zechariah to burst out in words and lyrics of praise? Well, we find out in verses 30 uh, from verse uh, 57 that what led Zechariah to sing the second Christmas song was the birth of his son. And what was extraordinary about this birth was that Elizabeth and Zechariah were very old. We read that they were well into their old age and we can only assume that they were quite settled to not have any children at all. But Gabriel, an angel, had appeared to Zechariah, who told him that they will bear a child, and they are to name him John. And Zechariah was a bit doubtful, and he asked Gabriel, uh, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And then Gabriel says, early in chapter 1, Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. In other words, I am God's spokesperson. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Gabriel makes Zechariah mute because he didn't believe in Gabriel's promise they will bear a son even in their old age. And we read this story and go, oh, look, Zechariah's question is understandable. Because from any ordinary human point of view, the, what the angel said could never have happened. But Zechariah was a priest. He had devoted his life to know God and to know how powerful he is. And to know how, over time, he has proven himself in Israel's history that nothing is too hard for God. And so when Zechariah asked, how can I be sure, Zechariah, what he was asking was that he wanted proof when he should have shown faith as a priest of the nation of Israel. And so Zechariah pays a price. And he will not say another word until this special child is born. And so there are two lessons to learn here. The first is to not have the air of thinking that doubting God has no consequences. Zechariah couldn't talk throughout the whole of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and I'm sure that would have perhaps been very difficult, perhaps very annoying for Elizabeth, but there are consequences we see. But there's also another lesson, that God's promises are bigger than our responses, whether it's good or bad. John would still be born as God had promised. And so when it was time, that is, After nine months, she gave birth to a son as Gabriel had promised. Their relatives and neighbours were overjoyed with the news about the birth. They rejoiced that God had removed Elizabeth's barrenness. And so, nine months later, like any other ordinary pregnancy, it was time for their son to be born. And so we pick up the story, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. And so it was time for their son to then be circumcised according to Jewish customs. Verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were gonna name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives Who has that name? See, the name of the child also takes place with the circumcision on the eighth day following the birth. And circumcision takes place before a crowd of witnesses in that culture. And so the crowd's expectation was that the son would be named Zechariah after his father because a child was customarily named after a father or grandfather. But God had already picked out a name for this boy. And Elizabeth remembered She spoke and said, no, he's to be called John. And so Elizabeth shows her obedience to God by doing what God had told her to do rather than the pressure or the tensions amongst her family. And so the crowd and the relative protest, they complained against Elizabeth because such a name is not customary. There's no one else in the family named John, they exclaimed. And in typical family dynamic, the relatives having disagreed with the wife Elizabeth, so they go and try to appeal to Zechariah, the husband. I don't know if you've experienced that family dynamic. Okay, so my wife said no, so now you're coming to me. So you think I'm a fool, do you? Do you think I'm a sucker for pain that I would go against my wife's instructions? And here we see a typical family in the Bible. But as we know, Zechariah was mute, and so they had to make signs to him. And verse 62, we read, Then he made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And so he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and began to speak, praising God. See, Zechariah can't speak. So he writes on a tablet, his name is John. It was an aha moment for Zechariah. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're united. They're on the same page. And so you can't divide their conviction and belief in God. And what we see is that Zechariah had learned to grow in faith and obedience from his period of silence. What we can learn is that one way that we can grow in our trust and faith in God is to shut up to zip it, to be silent. One way that God can help us grow our faith is for him to silence our doubts, our caution, our notions of logic and rationality so that when we hear the word of God, we will receive his word at face value and not have the ability to give voice to any of our words of doubt. And so what seems like punishment or a harsh rebuke was actually a blessing from God. God silenced his words of doubt. Have you had someone in your Bible study group, maybe not at Chapel Hill, you can think and say maybe from another church perhaps, but you had someone in your Bible study group who always questions the Bible all the time, always challenging what the text says, always assessing the cultural relevance of God's instructions. And then you just have someone that jumps in and says, why are we wasting our time questioning the Bible? It's God's word, we need to submit to it, and we need to spend time working out how to obey it. And then there's this long, awkward silence. Everyone's feeling, well, that was a bit harsh, but everyone's thinking, thank God someone said that, because that's actually what we need to hear. And this is the kind of like what Zechariah had experienced, except that he was shut down by God, and the awkward silence lasted for nine months. And I'm actually kind of curious to know if Elizabeth had actually found it difficult that his husband was um, not talking, or whether she actually really enjoyed (laughs) that period of silence for the whole pregnancy. I was thinking, that's probably God's version of... um, noise-cancelling AirPods. So I don't know, but I'm curious to find out. So it, it, it's okay to come to God with your questions and your doubts, especially when you're seeking God for the first time. God actually welcomes and he actually promises us in the Bible to give us the answers that we're seeking for. But if you're like Zechariah, someone who's been in the Christian faith for a while, it's still okay to come to God with your questions and doubt. But sometimes maybe just sometimes, God may desire to gently silence your words, your doubts, your notions of rationality, to silence those inner murmurs and complaints of your hearts so that you can just simply hear his word clearly and take his word simply at face value. Because although you may not fully understand his specific words, You perhaps should know by now and understand his character. He's a God that keeps and fulfills his words. God in his grace tells Zechariah, Brother, just zip it before you discourage yourself and discourage others with your questions and doubt. And just watch in quietness, in silence. Just watch me fulfill what I have promised to you. And so God silencing Zechariah was a rebuke, but it's also a blessing to help him grow in his faith. And so if you have a dear brother or sister in Christ who kindly shuts down your doubts and complaints, accept that rebuke as a blessing and thank God that that is perhaps exactly what you actually need to hear. Pastorally, if you have someone who's working through their questions and doubts, do spend the time to explain God's word within the context of the passage. But if they're still struggling, then remind that person of the character of God, that instructions are good for us because he's a good God. Your situation might be difficult to comprehend at this point in time, but you can still trust God because he is a trustworthy God. And if the person then doubts the character of God, then you take them back to the gospel. Show them the person of Jesus. Show him Jesus' love, grace, and mercy at the cross. Let Jesus' life, death, and resurrection move their hearts so that their questions and doubts melt away in Christ's love, grace, and mercy. And so through silence, Zechariah grew in faith. His faith was expressed in writing, his name is John, on that tablet. And then immediately, Zechariah can speak again. And what's so spectacular is that his first words after nine months of not being able to talk, he sings a song of praise. I don't know about you, if you were silent for nine months, you probably had all these things that you want to communicate. Isn't it remarkable that for Zechariah, the first thing that he wanted to say were a song of praise about God. And so reading from verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who'd heard this wondered about asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Everyone was struck with awe to witness what had happened. They began to see that God has a particular plan for this child. Zechariah now has grown in faith, is confident that God is indeed a God who fulfills his promises. He tells everyone what God will fulfill through a song of praise. And what is interesting as we look through it now, in Zechariah's song he sings a lot about God's son and only a little bit about his own son in how God will fulfill his promises. So let's have a look, in Zechariah's song, God fulfills his promises in three ways. The first fulfillment is that God will raise a king from the house of David. And we see that from verses 68 to 70. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago. So throughout the whole Old Testament, Israel had been expecting a new king that God would raise up, that God would promise to be a king who will save the nation of Israel from their enemies. And this king specifically would come from the house of David, from the lineage of King David. And so when we read through the Gospels, we know that Jesus came from the house of David. He was in the lineage of David. And so he's saying that Jesus is going to be the mighty king that saves. Jesus will be the one that will fulfill this prophecy, this expectation that one king from the house of David will come and indeed save his people. And the key thing around there is this... um, word, horn, about this king, that he will be the horn of salvation, that was an, a word or reference to might, and so that he would be a mighty king that will come and save. And we're going to look a bit later what exactly that might and power would be, um, but we're going to move on and look at the second fulfillment, and that is God's son will fulfill an oath to Abraham. That's verses 71 to 75. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant and oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So Abraham was the forefather of the nation of Israel. God had called Abraham to move and set up a new place that would become the nation of Israel. And God has made an oath or a promise or a covenant to say that as Abraham's descendants were to establish their nation, they would be saved from their enemies. They would not have to fear from their enemies who wanted to perhaps occupy them or take them over. And what we see is that this uh, oath is fulfilled in Jesus who saves us, that he is the new Israel who will protect us from our enemies. And so we're gonna look in more detail what his might would be and perhaps what are the actual enemies. The third fulfillment gets to the point where Zechariah finally sings a little bit about his son. And the third fulfillment is for John to make way for the king. That's verses six, uh, seventy-six to 78. And you, my child, you are called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And so John, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, was going to be a forerunner. He'll be the one that will prepare people uh, by explaining what Jesus will do so that people will receive Jesus as their king and as their rescuer from their enemies. But uh, Zechariah gives us a bit more detail as to how Jesus would provide us this mighty salvation. The question is, what kind of salvation? Because all along, this language that we see in this song, and all along as we look at through the Old Testament, the expectation is probably for an earthly king. And the power and might would be perhaps military power and might. As you think about Abraham and the nation of Israel, we're thinking more along those earthly lines. But Zechariah says this is a different kind of salvation. It's not military salvation or political salvation. It says the salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And this implies that our enemies or Israel's enemies is not the surrounding nations, but the enemies that is sin and death. This is going to be an enemy that is internal and inherent in all and every human being. But Jesus is going to have the power and might to tackle that through the forgiveness of his sins. And so what we see in Jesus is not a military leader with golden armour. What we see in Jesus is a king who suffers humbly on the cross. And through the cross, he gives us the forgiveness of our sins. And through the cross, he defeats The greatest enemy of all, which is our sinful nature and our subsequent consequence of death. Jesus comes to fulfill those promises, fulfill that salvation. That is who Jesus is and that is what Zechariah sings about. And their son, they're very proud of him, even though he only gets a couple verses. They're very proud of him because he gets to be in a privileged position to be a forerunner. For Jesus, But Jesus gets the glory and praise because only Jesus can offer us that kind of salvation. The last thing I want to end on in terms of our final application is to look at verses 74 to 75. We've learned that Jesus saves us not from domestic or international enemies. He saves us from sin and death. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. I find that this is a pretty uh, a standout verse out of this whole song that we see this amazing salvation through Jesus but the purpose of that salvation is yes, we're freed from our sin, yes, we're freed from the consequences and not have to face death and receive eternal life but our ultimate purpose is that we're saved by God to serve Him without fear serve Him without fear and that really struck me uh, because the question that I was asking about what might be stopping our church family from serving God more fully and it struck me perhaps fear is the thing I don't think Necessarily, it's a lack of competence or ability. I think we're a very gifted church, but perhaps what might be holding us back is fear. And so what kind of fear does Jesus free us from when we have his salvation? I think it's three things. Sin, death, and man. Sin is our enemy which we can fear because we might feel like we're not good enough to serve. Our sins makes us feel like we're not good enough to serve and it stops us from serving God. But Jesus saves us because he forgives our sins. We're given a second chance. He wipes all of our sins away. And so what we see in Jesus Christ, that Jesus uses those who are weak and sinful and imperfect to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And so Jesus' salvation frees us from the guilt and shame of our sin, so that we can be free to serve. The second enemy which we can be fearful that might stop us from serving God wholeheartedly and more fully is death. See, when we may not think about death a lot, but we actually do when we're preoccupied to live for the treasures for earth. If we're preoccupied to living treasures on earth, that it means that we really think that we need to make the most of our time now because there's going to be an end date of our life. And so we actually are fearful of death by trying to be busy all the time to make the most of life. And so we might be too busy seeking treasures in to serve god but in jesus salvation we have eternal life there is no end date for us and so we can still pursue a livelihood but we might not need to live for treasures on earth because we already know that we have treasures in heaven which is god himself and our eternal church family And when we have this eternal timeline, all of a sudden we don't have this compressed, highly pressured time frame in order to make the most of our life, but rather see that we have all of eternity to serve God and his purposes. And we can do that right now in all of the security that we have in him, that we are secure in Christ. We will live forever. And the last enemy is man. We might fear disapproval or rejection, that that might stop us from serving God. We might care too much about man's approval, and so we get a bit scared, we get a bit nervous, and we don't step into the things that people might see in us, some giftings, some passions, but you might be the one that's actually holding yourself back because you're afraid of what might, people might say when you perhaps might stuff up or don't do a good job. But in Jesus' salvation, it goes back to the first point, that Jesus uses weak and sinful, imperfect people to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And if you have an approval by God, by his forgiveness of his sins, then you are forever loved, you are forever approved. You're forever cared for, such that if you do stuff up and someone does make a complaint or have a bit of a whinge or give you perhaps some really good feedback, that's not going to crush you because your identity is not anchored on those comments, but your identity is anchored on what Jesus and God says to you in his salvation, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so that's something I want to pray for. I know that our church has so much to offer to each other and to our local community and we've only saw glimpses of the great things that God has done through our community concert, our community carols, our small little outreach events perhaps what's holding us back is perhaps not abilities or time or energy, perhaps what's stopping us is fear and this Christmas through Zechariah's song He's pointing us back to our mighty Lord and the great salvation he has so that we can serve him without fear because we are loved and secure in Christ. Let's pray for those things into the new year. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is our horn of salvation that is mighty to deal with our sin, that is victorious over death. Help us to believe and put our faith in him so that we are not defined by our guilt and shame. We're not fearful of our short time on earth and above all, we live for your approval. And so help us to serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness before you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.